At the end of 2019, the coronavirus pandemic began its global takeover. The world had to react fast to try and stop the spread. It was literally overnight, and it was all about how quickly people can mobilise. You imagine at at the start of the pandemic, it was about how quickly we could get the project up and running and then being used. The project was a mega lab, first announced a few months after the outbreak of the virus, and large enough to cope with never-before-seen testing requirements. Because in January 2020, scientists analysed and published the virus genome, allowing the world's best laboratories to develop tests that could quickly detect it. Testing became a fundamental strategy for protecting people and slowing the spread of the virus. But to do this, the UK needed more lab space and fast. Everybody understood the importance of the project and everybody understood how quickly we needed to to deliver. And everybody just bought into it. Everybody just bought into it and everybody did what they needed to do. The team knew that this project would be complicated, intricate, and it would need to be developed as quickly as possible. We realised pretty soon we would need to overlap planning, design, construction and operation. Building the Megalab relied on the successful placement of a series of moving parts, each of which was vital to the completion of every level of the project, all under enormous time pressure. Like a game of Tetris, but with lives at stake. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Jane Sophia. And I'm Alex Conacher. And for this episode, we've partnered with WSP to talk about the design, construction and operation of the UK's first COVID-19 mega lab, the Rosalind Franklin Laboratory, which was at the heart of its pandemic testing infrastructure. MACE project director Steve Cundall has just explained how critical the project was, and as a project that relied on the efforts of lots of different experts, we also spoke to designer, WSP, architect, HOK, and the UK Health Security Agency, which owns and runs the Rosalind Franklin Laboratory. As an internationally renowned British experimentalist, Rosalind Franklin's research saved lives and changed the way we see DNA. She was the person who took Photo 51, the first clear picture of DNA, and later worked out the complex structure of a virus. Having received no credit for her work in her lifetime, Rosalind has only recently gained the renown she truly deserves. We can't know what understanding of viruses we would have had without her. But the work she did proved instrumental both in the 1950s and more recently in the COVID-19 pandemic. By providing us with the necessary knowledge to understand a virus, her legacy lives on in the vaccines and the testing we see today. It is in her honour that the laboratory we will look into in this episode was named. Simply speaking, a lab is where sample testing can be undertaken to provide objective analytical data. People talk about it being a COVID lab, but at the end of the day, it's a lab. And there is a, there's a lack of, of good lab space in the UK. And Rosalind Franklin can provide that to, to both public and private sector. So although it was built for the most recent pandemic, it's now a critical piece of infrastructure 
built specifically for large-scale testing. Certainly. The, the uses of the lab are endless going forward. While the Lighthouse Labs, a mix of NHS, university and private laboratories, were doing a good job, with approximately 600,000 tests per day possible, they didn't have the necessary capacity for the country. Many individual labs had a capacity of 20 to 100,000 tests a day. Rosalind Franklin was a scaled-up version, capable of achieving up to 200,000 tests a day. But you can't just whack a few test tubes in a building and call it a lab. Many, many complex requirements had to be considered first. It was reasonably clear at the beginning of the project what the workflow looked like. But what wasn't clear was what kind of site we would need um, and what the priorities would be. So those emerged during those initial stages of initiating the project, particularly around the logistics. And time was critical. We came up with this kind of mantra that, that really whatever took a year in a normal construction had to be done in a month. And anything in a month had to be done in a week. And then everything in a week had to be done in a day. That was Gary Clark. I'm Head of Science Technology at uh, the London Studio HOK. Other logistical requirements included the delivery and storage of the various materials and reagents needed. Steve Blake is the Director of Laboratories for the organisation who owns and operates the lab, the UK Health Security Agency, or UKHSA. We've built into a warehouse and what warehouses are great at is, is being designed for logistics, i.e. transports, lorries arriving day and night, so they're in an area not, you know, not next to housing. On an industrial estate with the nearest housing a little less than half a mile away. So if you've got to deliver it at two o'clock in the morning, it doesn't bother anyone. That it can take vehicles of different sizes, including articulated lorries. And all that with a potential workforce of up to 1,000 people and the capability to extend to 2,000 on a site running 24-7. So this is quite people-intensive work. But situated on an industrial estate, there aren't many local conveniences like shops, necessitating the inclusion of an on-site canteen. It was important to ensure their employees' safety alongside mitigating risk of contamination. Some of the... Um design and build considerations are about the general amount of resilience built into the site, making sure that if we have a power cut, we've got backup generators. And it needed a central location. Leamington Spa was preferred location. You're so close to lots of universities, you need lots and lots of clever people. This is Helen Buckingham, the design manager for WSP. So it was sort of the melting pot of the transport links, the tapping into universities locally that we would be able to build the teams because we're building three three projects in one really. I, I was involved in the infrastructure stream but alongside it you've got the equipment stream where they were designing the process and buying the right equipment scientifically and you've also got the people stream building a team that could then run the legacy laboratory. And all of this has to be done within the constraints of an existing warehouse. Here is Gary from Studio HOK again. And it's a leased building, so you've got to take it back to its original condition at the end of the, uh, of the rent. So you've got to design something that actually can be installed and removed. And don't forget, this was all happening during the height of COVID, with lockdowns past and looming for the future. Everybody did what they needed to do. I remember the first Easter, 
I was sat on site the full Easter weekend. It was a beautiful, a lovely weekend, I remember, taking photographs of thermometers in the lab. We were trying to get the lab up to temperature. Nobody else on site, but it was me that did it. Obviously at the time, right in the beginning, and at a number of points during the project, we had spikes in COVID, but one of our key risks was COVID and, and the effect that COVID would have on the workforce. Daily on-site testing that, although not mandatory, had a phenomenal uptake. Alongside compulsory mask wearing and social distancing. A meeting room that would hold 12 people, you could maybe get three people in it. A welfare facility that maybe held, could have held 120, you could maybe get 40 people in. So it meant that space on the site was very restricted because we had to have so much more. And bear in mind, you know, we're 24-7, 600 guys on site, 24-7. The team turned to the entertainment industry for a solution. So we had beautiful tents brought in with balconies and all sorts. The tents gave them the space that they needed. And we could put them up and down pretty quick. A lack of more than just space was causing issues. The construction industry generally at the time was struggling with materials because a lot of the factories weren't working across the world. And all the time, safety remained a critical priority. During the pandemic, I mean, safety and construction site is paramount. It's, it's uh, for, for all the right reasons. It's, it's the number one factor, followed closely behind with quality. The way you achieve those is by getting the right people on the project. But the, the faster you move on a project, the, obviously the risks start to go up in terms of safety. It was a very hands-on for everybody, from, from, you know, from the MACE safety team, the Balfour safety team, their subcontractors and the client to, to in the, obviously in the midst of the pandemic and everything that COVID meant and, and the restrictions that were on, placed on us, the conventional safety was, was paramount. With all of these constraints and specifications understood, the team could begin moving their blocks, making progress. The key player in success of this project was Major Gary Jackson. Praised by our guests, Major Jackson of the Engineering Regiment chaired the design authority meetings with military precision. Each participant was given a strict five minutes to succinctly explain their point and have their decision made. Can't be concise? Come back next time. It was quick. It was snappy. It all hinged around the clarity of decision-making. And this is no joke. In those design authority meetings, we had over 100 people on the team's call. So everybody was informed. Not everybody spoke, but there was a, there was a sort of quorum of people who had to make the decision. So it was very important that when, when things came to that design authority, it was everybody had the information, the people coming in could talk about it, and then we'd make a decision there and then. And Gary chaired these meetings. So a big shout out to Gary Jackson, Major Gary Jackson. He clearly described the impact and benefit of all of the, of all of the changes that were needed. And, and without that, without that design authority, we'd never have got where we were. And it was brilliant. It was brilliant. So the, uh, the, the vision was, um, right, let's, let's get a logistics warehouse, the biggest spaces that we can find, and then build within that as fast as possible the kind of testing uh, facilities uh, for the diagnostic testing 
Uh, and so it was using the, um, the principles of the Nightingale Hospitals. But the Nightingale Hospitals were open plan, and the Rosalind Franklin lab had to have enclosed boxes within the larger space. Gary's design team had to decide how these enclosed boxes would all fit in the pre-built space of the warehouse. You know, they come in different sizes, but the one we were looking at was the um, was kind of probably the, uh, the mid to large scale, which is 200 metres long by 100 metres wide. But obviously they've got columns in as well. Where the initial concept incorporated a 150 metre long production line, another stumbling block was reached with a lack of space and fire safety considerations. So we just basically did a U-shape, so we did 75 metres long and two, uh, and then actually at the top of that, then you had uh, the uh, little pavilion, which was the, that's where all the testing was done. It was essentially a horseshoe-shaped room, with a central joining point where the lab lines intersected. That was kind of the concept that came really quickly, uh, and then that first weekend uh, I sketched a layout, and then that's really probably what's built. A production line for Endpoint Polymerase Chain Reaction Tests, or ePCRs. So PCR testing is a standard, gold standard, high quality test that's used for many laboratory processes. But what's unusual about Rosalind Franklin is the, um, is the volume and the high throughput and the speed with which it gets through those tests. So we use a technology that is manufactured by a firm called LGC. They're the only firm in the world that makes something like this. It miniaturises the samples into a roll tape. For ease, picture a petri dish the size of a pinhead. This tape is then dunked intermittently in hot and cold water, each time triggering a reproductive cycle that multiplies the RNA. And the magic is that we have reagents in there that attach itself to the RNA. And when you shine up, ultraviolet light on it, those, those that have grown glow in the dark, hence the Lighthouse Lab network name. If COVID is present, it will now be clear to the tester and glow in the dark. And to replicate that, to go through the machines, they used orange juice. Specifically, pulpy orange juice. You know, the one with bits in. The pulpy orange juice replicated a COVID sample for the purposes of testing the equipment before any actual samples went through it. To fit this equipment in, the team needed to know what equipment would be used. And what infrastructure resources they would have access to. Consulting with organisations within the supply chain allowed the team to design exclusively within the elements they knew the manufacturers could provide. The modular manufacturing model is a modern method of construction, simultaneously an engineering and design challenge, but a win for sustainability. So it's off-site manufacturing, rather than taking your wet trades on site, which take time, then you've got to take dry components, uh, which are pre-assembled, and then you take them to site, and then it's a lot quicker, you just basically bolt them together. So all of the laboratories were made out of modular panels, that were a kit of parts. So when they came to site, it was you were, you weren't having to drill and you know cut down to size. They were all already the size they were meant to be, and they worked closely with us. So we were we designed in three D from the off. With daily meetings and the three D space, the team could review the model for clashes, figuring out layout and who took precedence. The other thing we did 
to speed it up was we made some decisions very early on. No breaking the slab unnecessarily. So all of the drainage is vacuum drainage and surface mount the electrical. So whilst you can, you know, have fully coordinated electrical in with the walls, beautiful lines, you know, we didn't need that. You need it to be cleanable. You need it to um, be workable. The idea of that is that you're, you're minimizing the number of, number of interfaces that you have at any one time. So you can speed through the design. As pieces started flying down thick and fast, the team and Major Jackson decided to split the decisions into three streams that Helen outlined previously. Infrastructure, equipment and people. Practicalities for all of these aspects aligned often along the course of construction. The design had to consider the people using it. And while this example is fairly typical... Simultaneously working on construction and lab work is less standard. The way the project was designed allowed us to do progressive handover and allowed the speed and the, uh, keep talking about cadence, but that cadence of, of handing over lab lines progressively whilst construction was going on. You know, imagine this is a, you know, this is a, a forensically clean environment that they're working in next to a construction site. One of the key components that allowed this was the separation of each lab and accompanying equipment. We were trying to maximise the number of work faces people could work on. So we were building line one and 12 and, and trying to build in the ducting for all the air handling uh, was done in modules. Situated above their individual labs, the EPCR kits had to be installed using cranes and, once in place, remain accessible for workers. So, you know, there, there was a lot of constructability that was considered and, and needed. The clever stuff was more in the sequencing, the phasing, the how, how can you get different teams working. So we made sure that it was a, a walk on ceiling so that you could be working on the installation of the uh, MEP and safely be inside the lab. What it comes down to is a laboratory in terms of containment level. It's a physical boundary. Okay, and it's all about air, so you can't let the air out because then a pathogen you could get out. So therefore, you've got to design it very carefully. So, so the air tightness of the lab is is critical, and uh, so then the that comes down to right into the way that all the kind of the, uh, the the wall partitions join each other, how the partitions then join the floor how it joins the ceiling. And so all those little details had to be considered. How it joins a window, how a door works, things like that. Utilising these individual air filtration systems means that a contamination event will only shut down the lab module in which it occurred, not all the labs. But crucially for the construction process, it meant the air supplies were separate, so the lab lines could be handed over when ready and others continued to be built without interfering with those already working. But on the 1st of January, we started, and on the, uh, three months later, we handed over the first lab line to the client. The coordination of this was only possible through the design authority meetings and prioritising collaboration. The collaboration helped us all push in the same direction. You said, what problems did we come across? Many, plenty, but 
none of them really stick out because we got over them all through collaboration and getting to the crux of the problem. What, what is the issue and, and come, coming forward with solutions. I cannot hand on heart say that any issues that we, that we had never lasted more than 24 hours. It was, and that was a long one, you know, it was always very, very fast moving and and collaborative, you know, I keep using that word, but it was collaborative. And the product of this collaboration? Getting the first keys um, handed over was great, and it was great to see um, that line going into production. But it wasn't a big bang launch because, of course, there were nine others to build. The last one to be to be handed over, that was the big moment. And then it was on to the welfare and the offices and everything like that. And I noticed in, in my team that erosion uh, after Christmas of people just like, you know, I need a break now. And, and you know, you forget. You do forget about the 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 stress levels and the and, and that you know it's it's probably easier for me sitting above it all when the guys that are working for me are right in amongst the nuts and bolts on a daily basis solving the same problems over and over and over again. So, so yeah, you, you know that's 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 something that again that I would take away from what I would say on this project is is that we have. We have a lot of instances where welfare is, is a in your state of mind is a, is a is a big thing, and we 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 paid a lot of attention to that. What the team is perhaps most proud of is the legacy that their collaboration has created. It was always going to be a legacy. There was lots of synergies uh, with the Nightingale hospitals, but they were always a temporary measure to get over a horrific situation. This was gone into knowing that it would be there for future. So the legacy here really is to create a, a large testing facility that can contribute to the country's health care. Now, we're currently in discussions with various others about how we go about doing that. Certainly, um, the, the uses of the lab are endless going forward, and that's something that I'm hugely proud of. But this has been a real success, you know, and is a real legacy, and we're incredibly proud of it. The lab has processed millions of tests over the course of the COVID pandemic. We helped in the COVID in, in, in sort of um, controlling that, that COVID spread. But at the, at the end of the end of the pandemic, we're left with this fantastic facility that weren't there before. We've got, we've got all these people now trained in, in lab science that weren't, that weren't available before. So yeah, going forward, who knows what the lab will do? Who knows? But it's, it's, it's a facility that's there and ready to be used, which is great. Engineering Matters is a production of Ruby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Jane Sophia, co-hosted by Alex Conacher, editing by Bernadette Ballantyne, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own overnight sensation is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partners, WSP. 
And thanks to you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.